We're going to read verses 43 to 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And we talk about the love of God, we talk about loving God, we talk about God loving us. And I think a lot of times it's just talk. And God and Christ, Jesus Christ especially, uh, puts so much more into that word love. And I want us to see a little bit of that today. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43 This is Jesus speaking. He says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at uh, what God has for us today. Our Father, Lord, we just need your help now. I pray that you would use your word to come into our minds and hearts, to convict us, to show us what you want us to be as your children, as followers of your Son. Lord, help us to understand this concept of love in a new way, in your way, rather than what we believe it to be or what the world thinks it should be. And so, Lord, just use your word today. Give us the power of your Spirit that he might open our minds and hearts to receive it. And Lord, I am a weak and faulty individual. I can't do this on my own, so I need your strength and I need your spirit. Please fill me with your spirit. I'm not worthy to proclaim your word, but I'm willing to be used as your instrument. So use me this morning, I pray, to accomplish your work during this time. Lord, help us to, rent, just to surrender ourselves to the authority of you and your word and do the things that you want to in our hearts now. Lord, thank you again that we can come here, that we can praise you and worship you, and part of that worship is now to surrender to your word as you teach us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage here is Christ telling or talking, teaching many people about what true love is, and he references the law, and the law, he says, you've heard it said Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That was basically the law, the Old Testament law. Now, there was a a Pharisee that came to Jesus and said, What is the greatest commandment? And he was trying to test Jesus, trying to get him to pick one of the ten and say, Okay, that one's greater, more important than all the other ones. And Jesus answered and he said, Well, you know what the greatest commandment is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. And then the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these hang all the law and the prophets. So everything that God gave as commands was based on those two things, to love God first and to love one another as a result, not second, but as a result of loving God. That's what comes out of loving God is for us to love each other. 
And Jesus here in this passage, as he's teaching, he's talking about what true love is. And he says, you've read in the law. You, you know what it means to love God, to love your neighbor, but then your enemies you're supposed to hate. In the Jewish terminology, love and hate were not what we perceive them as they are today. Okay? To hate is to despise somebody. Okay? We have absolutely no positive feelings toward them at all. That would be how we define hate. In Jewish terminology, it's a comparative. It's not two ends of a spectrum. It's a comparative. God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He didn't actually hate Esau the way we envision hate. What he was saying is there's a comparative. I love Jacob and I've elevated him in, in my love and I loved Esau less. Because Jacob was the promised one, or one of the promised one, through which God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. Esau was not, and therefore Jacob was in kind of a higher plane of God's love, if you will. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He said, you have read, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. That means you elevate that love to a certain degree. And that's the law. But then he says, but I say to you, in verse 44, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And look at the next verse, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Jesus defined the children of God, or people who were followers of his, truly the children of God who are saved, as those who love as a rule, even their enemies. They go above and beyond the bar, okay? So most Christians who are familiar with Christ's answer about the greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor, they understand that. But do we really practice that, the way that Jesus commanded, and the way that Jesus raises the bar here, okay? The problem that we face is that I don't think we understand what love is as believers. We don't understand God's love for us. Otherwise, we would have different love for each other. And people's excuse is this. Well, you know, I try the best I can. I try to love God. I try to love other people. I'm doing the best I can. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to treat everybody the same. Um, here's the issue is that our love is not based on consistency and fairness. That's not how God measures love. God measures our love as it's compared to other people. What other people do. And you think, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. We're not supposed to compare ourselves to other people. Actually, we are in our love. Okay? By that, I mean this. First, we are to compare our love for others to Christ's love for others. Because he's the standard. So there is a comparison. And when we make that comparison of how we love other people versus how Christ loved other people, we always fall short. Always. So we have never, and we will never, get to that standard of love that God has called us to perfectly on our own. Okay? So we have to compare our love to Christ's love, but we also are to compare our love, in a sense, to how other people love us and how other people love others. And that's in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. In other words, 
We are to look at other people and how we can provoke them, how we can encourage them to love. And how do we do that? By example. So we are to love more than others love so that our example provokes them to love. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, the Bible says, Love one another with brotherly affection. And then it says, this is from the ESV, Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. How do you know if you're outdoing your brother in showing love if you're not looking at how much love they're showing? We are called to outdo one another in the love we show to each other. And so our love is compared to other people, to Christ, and to others. And that is where we start looking at, do we meet the standard? Are we showing more love than other people? Are we showing as much love as Christ? That's the real question. And there we always fall short, so there's always more that we can do. Now, we can only show love if we first have God's love. We know God loves us. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved us. Okay? So God loves us. That's an absolute. We don't have to question that. The Bible makes that very clear over and over and over. He would not have sent his son if he didn't love us. So our love for God is judged by how we love others, the Bible says. If we say we love God because he loved us, then we demonstrate that we love God by how we love others. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 says, If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. You cannot say you love God and then not love other people. Because if you love God, then you will love like Christ. If we say we love God and we try to convince people we love God but then don't love each other, the way God calls us to love each other, we're liars, the Bible says. And he goes on in First John, it says, For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. So it's a consistent thing in the life of a Christian that love is the mark of true faith. If we're following Christ in true faith, if we truly have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit now that is in us, then the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it can't happen unless he's in us. And so people who say they love God but don't love each other, they don't love God. John 14, 15, Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. And what was Jesus' commandment? He said, this commandment I give you that ye love one another. Okay, so you see this emphasis on loving each other all through scripture. Christ set the standard and we are now held to that standard. Now here's the problem. Christ was perfect, right? He was the perfect human being. We are not. Well, I don't know. How many of you are perfect? No. Okay, I didn't think so. All right, so we're not perfect. And Christ went way beyond what normal people do, right? Way beyond what normal people do. And he showed love much better, much more consistently than we do. Is that an excuse? We say, I'm not Christ. If you say that, stop calling yourself a Christian. Because the word Christian means little Christ. And we have the same spirit in us that Christ had in him. He was 100% human, just like we are. He struggled with the same temptations, the Bible tells us, that we struggle with. 
He had the same weaknesses, the same hurt, the same feelings that we have. The only thing he didn't do was give in to the temptation to sin. But we have the same spirit to keep us from that as well. So is it possible to love like Christ loved? Yes, it's possible if we obey the spirit of God. Is it probable? No, because we're human beings and we choose our own way so many times. We choose to neglect or ignore God's commands and the work that he wants to do in us. So when we come to the topic of love, Christ set the standard, and we'd have to call it this, compared to the rest of our love, let's call Christ's love radical love, because it's way beyond the spectrum of what we think we can perform or, or demonstrate. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. I'm going to give you these three verses, and then I'm going to come back to them at the end. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of fill in the blank, love, of power and of love and a sound mind. That's what the Holy Spirit brings to us, power, love, and a sound mind. Galatians chapter 2, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law, no prohibitions, no exceptions to love. Okay? There's no law against it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. This is a command to us, seeing that we have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit to unfeigned love of the brethren. That means sincere, not fake, not hypocritical love, not performance love. This is true love from the heart. Since we have purified our souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently. That word fervently means we have to work at it. It doesn't come easy. And we know that's true. We have the same spirit Christ had. So is it possible for us to live in radical love like Jesus did? Absolutely. Or we wouldn't be called to it. Go back to the passage that you have in front of you. Look at verse 48, Matthew chapter 5. What did Jesus say? Be ye therefore, what's the word? Perfect. That's Jesus telling us what we need to be. Perfect. The word is mature, complete. We sang this morning, complete in thee. What are we lacking in order to fulfill what God wants us to be and to do in our lives if we have everything in Christ? What more do we need to do and be what what God wants us to be? Nothing. We are complete in him. We are perfect in Christ. At least he's given us everything that we need to be perfect, to be mature, to be complete in our love. And so Jesus says, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, in First Peter, or I'm sorry, in Second Peter, as I read this morning, it talked about heart, our heart, a love, an unfeigned love from the heart. See, love is not actions, okay? It's not just actions. We try to prove our love for other people through actions. I buy my wife flowers. I buy her candy sometimes. I buy her, I give her cards to, you know, express my love. Okay, those are actions. But what's in my heart? That's what matters. And remember, what does God look at when he looks at and values our love? What does he look at? What we do or what's inside? God does not value men or look at men the way men does. God looks at the heart. 
We look at the outward because that's all we can see. So what Christ demonstrated here was a heart, a true inner heart love and compassion for people. That's the radical love. It comes from a heart. It can only come from inside. And so it's interesting to me, as I was reading through the New Testament, uh, I read through the Gospels this week, and over and over when Christ came upon people who were in need, the phrase just, just kept appearing. He had compassion on them. And then he did this. He healed them. He fed them. He did whatever. But it started with, he felt compassion for them. That was the inner love. Now the question then is, do we have that inner compassion for people that Christ had? Because there's where radical love starts. Is our heart in a condition, or have we surrendered our heart so that the Holy Spirit can produce that radical compassion for people is about our attitude. We can do good things to people and still despise them. And in our minds, we're thinking, I can't believe this person is so disgusting or, or you know, oh, I, I wish they would change or whatever. I mean, however you look at them. You know, we, we could go and, and uh, uh, take food to the needy. We can give money to the poor. We can do all the things that people say are good works. Help people out. But in our heart, if we do not love them in our heart and have true compassion as Christ had on them, that's not love. It's it's performance. It's hypocrisy, really, at its best. But it's not true love. And so when Christ gives us this this teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he raises the bar for us. And in verse 45, he says, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. If you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publican so. If you salute your brother only, what more? What do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans do so. So he's saying what the standard is for most people. If I do good works to show my love to other people, unsaved people do that. That's not enough. Unsaved people go take care of the sick. That's not enough. And so Christ gives us this message right here that the status quo is no longer good enough. Good enough no longer is. We can't measure ourselves by the status quo as far as do we love people the way we should. We look at Christ. So as he becomes the standard then, We need to look at the character of what Christ's love was. And I want to share a couple of points with you, three points, or three characteristics of Christ's love, what it was, what it was not, to teach us what our love should be if we're truly living in the radical love of Christ. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, it says, God is no respecter of persons. First, Christ's love, radical love, if you will, is empty of partiality and respect of persons. It does not choose who it's going to love. We don't get to pick and choose who we love. God says we are to love everyone, just as he loves everyone. We don't pick and choose who we're going to love based on status, nationality, position, or social standing, or even health and personal hygiene. Okay? Uh, uh, There are a few people that have come into my acquaintance that... It's not comfortable to stand close to them. 
okay, without maybe a clothespin on your nose or whatever. But we love them anyway because God doesn't differentiate because of how people look or even how they act. He sent his son to everybody. But let's look at Christ specifically. And for time, I'm not going to read all these passages. You can look them up if you want. In John chapter 4, there's a scenario where Jesus goes and talks with a woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. Jesus didn't need to go talk to her. In fact, he didn't even need to go into her city. Most of the time, the Jews went from the northern part of Judea around Samaria and then came back across the Jordan River into Judea where Jerusalem was. That's how they would travel, so they didn't have to go through Samaria. We talked about the Samaritans a little bit this morning in Sunday school. When the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they exiled many of the Jews in that area. Took them back, put them in prison, put them in exile. Some of them they left there, but they sent a bunch of their own people, heathen people, into the land to corrupt the people. And they intermarried and stayed in that area. It became known as Samaria. The Samaritan armies, in fact, were ones that oppressed the Jews when they went back to rebuild the temple and the wall. So the Samaritans were hated by Jews. They were half-breeds. They were dogs, really. That's how they referred to them. And they had nothing to do with them, and they wouldn't even walk through their land. Jesus goes directly to this woman, a Samaritan, in Samaria. No reason for him to be there except that he went purposefully to talk to her. And he intentionally went there where he was despised as a Jew. He was not liked there either because he was a Jew. And he was expected to despise the Samaritans because of their sinful lineage. And if you read the story in, in uh, John chapter 4, the disciples show up and was like, why are you talking to her? Kind of like, she's a Samaritan. We're not supposed to do that. Okay? But that's what Jesus did. Because he loved this woman. This is radical compassion, beyond the norm of society. Now, here's the description of this woman. He finds out, or he knows, but he asks her, and she uh, declares this. She has been divorced five times. And the, woman, and the man she's now living with is not her husband. Divorced five times, and she's living with someone out of wedlock. If she had shown up in many churches today, she'd probably be kicked out before anyone ever took the time to sit down and explain to her her situation from God's perspective. Because she would be condemned, just like the Jews condemned just the fact that she's a Samaritan. But this just added fuel to the fire for them, divorced five times and now living out of wedlock with a man. Jesus didn't care. He didn't condemn her for her situation And he broke the barrier of prejudice and prejudgment that most religious people practiced at that point. He went above the norm. And he shared with her the truth that would help her to get right with God. Now, there's an example of radical love. No prejudice, no prejudgment, no condemnation, just sharing the truth with somebody who needs to hear it, no matter who they are. A Samaritan. Second example, in Matthew chapter 15, a Canaanite woman. Now, most people don't even realize this story is in the Bible. But Jesus takes a visit to Tyre and Sidon, which is north of of Israel, just north of Israel, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And as he's there, a Canaanite woman comes to him and wants him to heal her daughter of a demon. Initially, as you read the passage, it seems that Jesus just ignores her because he doesn't say anything. 
She comes and appeals to him as, Lord, can you heal my daughter? And he just ignores her, doesn't say a thing. Now, let's put it in the context. First of all, she's a Canaanite woman. Remember way back in the Old Testament when Israel went into the promised land, what they were supposed to do with the Canaanites? God said, destroy them all. Get rid of them because they're a bad influence. We do not want to bring their sin and idolatry to influence Israel in the promised land. Israel didn't do it. They left some there. We know the story how Israel was dragged down into a tree because of the influence of the Canaanites. Here's a Canaanite woman. She shouldn't even exist in the mind of the Jews. And yet Jesus helps her. In, in the mind of the disciples, Jesus was right not to respond initially. In fact, the disciples try to chase her away. And she persists. And finally, Jesus pays attention to her and gives her this answer. He says, I'm only come for the lost people of Israel, implying that she wasn't even on his radar for ministry. Strange answer from Jesus Christ. Okay? But this was a test. It wasn't his true feeling. He was just saying the societal norm. His ministry was to the Jews. And in verse 26, Jesus even says, it's not fit to feed children's bread to the dogs, implying that she's a dog, an outcast, which in the mind of the Jews that she, she was, should not have existed. But in her faith, she says to Jesus, but even a dog gets to eat of the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And Jesus says, I have not seen faith like this in all Israel. And because of your faith, your daughter's healed. Didn't matter who she was. She needed help, and Jesus helped her. Look at others Jesus had compassion on. In Matthew 20, there's two blind beggars that he comes across. They were sitting by the temple. Now, think of the situation. Two blind beggars, they're blind, they're beggars. They're sitting there. They're probably homeless. They're probably dirty. They're probably stinky. They're not people that you and I would want to associate with on a regular basis, probably right? We take a shower once in a while. We go to work and earn our money. In some of our society, much of our society would probably look at them and go, get a job. Jesus had compassion on them. These are people who the Pharisees would drop a coin in their direction once in a while just to fulfill their need for taking care of the poor. That was how the Pharisees loved. Okay? But it says, Jesus touched them. Blind, dirty, smelly beggars. He touched them and healed them. How many of us would be willing to go and touch somebody like that? Give them a hand. Give them a hug. Probably not many. But that's not the end of it. Jesus touched these beggars, healed them, and then it says, and they got up and followed him. They didn't take a shower yet. Okay, they didn't change their clothes. They got up and followed him. Have you ever met those people who you kind of have compassion for? They're down and out, they really need help, and you understand that. And so you offer them help. And then they never go away. They're always there. How do we feel about them? 
These blind beggars followed Jesus. He didn't shoo them away. He welcomed them as part of his little band that followed him everywhere he went. How many times have we driven past the people on the street with signs asking for money? And have we ever stopped to ask them their story? What's their situation? How they get like this? Or do we just drive by with that thought? Why don't you just go get a job like normal people? We really don't care about them or their circumstances or we take the time to find out what happened. Mark chapter 1. Jesus is sitting and a leper comes to him asking to be healed. Now, by law, anybody with leprosy is supposed to stay away from other people. That's the Jewish law. Okay, God gave that command. They're supposed to stay outside of the camp, outside the community, away from healthy people. So this man with leprosy comes right up to Jesus Christ. And in verse 41 of Mark chapter 1, it says, Jesus was moved with compassion for him. And then he touches the leper. He touched him. Now, that's how you get leprosy, right? You come in contact with somebody who has the disease. Jesus touched him. He had no fear of getting that disease. He didn't worry about himself. He didn't worry about the law, even, or the recommendations of the law as far as that social distancing that had to happen. He touched the leper because the leper needed help. And he gave the leper what he needed in radical love and compassion, and he met his need regardless of the personal risk to himself. See, I believe that's what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 4. We are familiar with these verses, verses 17 and 18. 1 John 4, 17 and 18 say this, Herein is our love made perfect. There's that word again, our love made perfect. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Basically, John is saying, here's how our love is made perfect, and he explains that in the previous verses by loving one another. But here he he goes a little bit beyond that and explains, we'll have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, as Christ is, so are we. We love people the way Christ loves. Then, if we do that, then we will have boldness when we stand before Christ because we know we will have met the standard if we love like Christ. But he goes on in verse 18, and he says this. There is no fear in love. Because perfect love casts out fear. See, when we perfectly love people, fear doesn't interfere with our interaction or love for them. How many times do we not love people because we're afraid of something? We're afraid of failure, of rejection, of embarrassment, of getting hurt or sick, a fear of whatever, that they may not like us. Perfect love casts out fear. That's what John is talking about. Our love is not inhibited because of what we are afraid is going to happen to us. And it doesn't matter what you're afraid of. Fear is a sign of a lack of faith and a lack of true love. And when we live by fear, it tells us, we should see in us, we don't trust God. And therefore, we can't do what God wants us to do. 
That's why John says we'll have boldness in the day of judgment. We'll truly be able to stand before Jesus Christ. We didn't live in fear. We lived in power and in love and in a sound mind, the Spirit of God. Perfect love, mature love, the radical love of Jesus Christ casts out fear and enables us to do whatever we need to do, regardless of the risks involved. He touched the leper because that's what he needed. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals the Roman centurion's servant. Now, first it's a Roman. Remember, they conquered Israel. The Jews hated him. And then it's a servant who most people wouldn't even take a second look at. So it's the Roman centurion's servant that needs help. And still Jesus healed him because he made no distinction about who was in need of his love. In Luke chapter 17, he heals ten lepers, even though only one comes back to thank him. Our love does not need reciprocation or thanks. In Luke chapter 22, he heals the ear of one of the men who had come by night to take him to be tried before his crucifixion. Remember, the people come to take him to the trial, and Peter takes his sword out and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus picks the ear up and heals it. The man who had come to take him to trial so he could be crucified. Those are the people he loved. He didn't care who it was that needed his compassion and help. All that mattered is that they were in need. And he showed radical compassion on all of them, regardless of their character, their condition, their health, or even how they treated him. That's the radical love that we are called to as we follow in his footsteps. Our love can't be partial to whom it's shown or it's not the love of Jesus Christ. If we start to pick and choose who we are going to love, then it's not love. That's called hypocrisy. We don't get to choose who we love. We must love everyone the same way. Not the same standard that we set, but the way Christ loved everyone. That's what we're called to. James chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. If you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one part, he is guilty of all. So if we choose and pick and select those who are worthy of our love, James says we are living in sin. God so loved the world without exception. He sent his son to die for all mankind without exception. He offers salvation and reconciliation to everyone without exception. And so our love has to be without exception. When we start making exceptions in who deserves our love and compassion, we literally make ourselves Pharisees and hypocrites. And Jesus condemned them for the hypocrisy. Very quickly, secondly, radical love is empty of judgmentalism and condemnation. It's not just not selective, but it doesn't judge. John chapter 8, Jesus said this, Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Now, people go, well, wait a minute. Jesus judged sinners, didn't he? No. In his first advent on the earth, he did not come to judge. He came to seek and to save those that were lost. When he comes the second time, then he comes as the judge. The first time, he came as a savior. And that's our example, because we're not the judge. Jesus says, you judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. 
problem is we can't judge truly because we don't know men's hearts. Only God knows that. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that ye be not judged. In John chapter 12, Jesus said this, if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. Wait a minute. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. And I'm, I'm reading that word for word from John 12, 47. So who are we to judge? Let me give you some examples. In Luke chapter 7, there's an account of a prostitute who anoints Jesus' feet as he's sitting in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now, first of all, he's in the house of a Pharisee. The Pharisee was not friendly toward him. He was trying to invite him over to trap him, probably. And that becomes apparent as you read through the passage. But a prostitute walks in with this expensive ointment, and she proceeds to to uh, wash his feet with her tears and then wipe it with her hair and then she anoints his feet with this ointment. And this man gets upset. Wow, that was a lot of money wasted on your feet. And Jesus responds and he says, there was a certain creditor. He tells Simon, here, I want to tell you something. He said, there's a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he gave them both. He forgave them both. Tell me which of them will love the most. And Simon the Pharisee says, I suppose to whoever he forgave the most, that's the one who would love the most. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. And he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. They gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head... With oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Here's where judgmentalism and condemnation come from. We think we don't have a lot to be forgiven of. And so we can't understand how great God's love is because we're entitled to it. When we get the proper perspective of how much sin God has forgiven us from, then we will understand how much love he's actually shown to us, and then we will start to love that way. But our problem is we look at people and we judge them, we condemn them because they don't meet our standard because we think we don't have much sin. 1 John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. That goes for Christians, too. But there are so many Christians who think, I don't have a life of sin. I don't do much sin. Okay, I'm not perfect. I know that. But, you know, I'm not like that guy. And so we look at that guy and we judge everything they do. We condemn everything they do because it's not as good as me. And I think there's a lot of good Christians who think of themselves that way and have trouble actually naming their sins because they don't think they have that many or anything serious. Now, we're supposed to confess our sins to God, but in James it also says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. We want to put up a face. We want to put up a front and show everybody that we're perfect Christians. We can't admit that we do wrong things. And that causes us to judge other people. 
Self-righteousness is a sure way of killing radical love in your life. Because I'm better than them. I become the judge. I condemn. I judge everything they do. Another example, a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Jesus is in the temple teaching. The scribes and the Pharisees drag a woman in who was caught in the act of adultery. Caught her actually in adultery. During the process. I mean, there's no question about her guilt, right? None at all. She's guilty. What does the law say? And that's what they ask him. Here, we caught her in the, in, in the act of adultery. Doesn't the law say that if someone is caught in the act of adultery, they should be stoned? There you go, Jesus. What are you going to do with her? Are you going to follow the law? The Bible says Jesus ignores them. He stoops down. He starts writing in the sand with his finger. And they keep asking him, they keep asking him, they keep asking him. And so finally he stands up and he says these words that everybody knows so well. He that hath no sin, let him be the first to cast a stone. Who's innocent? Jesus said, who who of you have no sin? Who's perfect here? If you're perfect, then you get to judge her. And one by one they walk out until there's nobody left. And Jesus looks at her, he says, So where are your condemners? Who's condemning you now? She says, nobody. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Our problem is we're so keen and so fast to judge and condemn other people's sin, but we're so slow to forgive it. This was a clear-cut case of adultery. She was caught in the act, and Jesus forgives her. No consequences, seemingly. So why do we wish harm upon people that harm us? Why can we not forgive them like Christ did in radical love? Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 34. When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand, (coughs) excuse me, The other on the left, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As they crucified him, Christ forgave them. That was the worst sin that could have ever been committed in all of history. And Jesus forgave them as it was being committed. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 and 32. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. But let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You know what malice is? Malice is we want someone else to suffer. I want them to feel pain because of what they did. That's malice. The next verse says, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. What's the next word? Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all these things, have fervent charity. That's radical love among yourselves. For charity covers a multitude of sins. Forgiveness. Not exposure, not gossip, not shove it in your face and I want you to pay for this forgiveness 
Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. People have said to me, well, you know, I can forgive, but I can't forget. I hope you don't really want God to forgive that way. Because if you can't forgive the way God forgives, then you haven't forgiven. If you remember and keep bringing it up over and over and over, you haven't forgiven. Does God do that to you? Is he, are we going to get to heaven? He's going to go, okay, well, before you get into heaven, let's go down the list. It's gone, folks. The sin is gone. And it says he remembers it no more. And that's the way we need to forgive. We said the Lord's Prayer today. I hope you prayed that sincerely. But immediately after Christ gave that prayer, this is what he says. And remember, in the prayer it says, Forgive us our trespasses as what? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Do you really want God to forgive you the way you forgive others? Okay, you pray that every week. But is that really the way you want it to happen? But immediately after giving that prayer, Jesus says this, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, based on those words, and in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If we can forgive, God will forgive us. That is a mark of true faith. But based on what Jesus said then, if a person is completely unforgiving and can't forget and always throws it in the face of the person that offended them, they cannot be saved. Because mercy becomes a part of our character when the Holy Spirit is in us. Forgiveness is the mark of a true godly love. And without it, we're fooling ourselves into thinking that we're Christians. Because if we don't have true love that forgives others, then we haven't been forgiven ourselves. That's Jesus' words, not mine. John chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. He that believeth on him is not condemned. All right, we know that part. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Condemnation comes upon us when we love darkness, when we rather have our own way, when we want to do our own thing, when we have malice against other people. That's called the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And that's a person who's not saved. So we're condemned because we love darkness rather than light. And our deeds are evil because we do not show love. Verse 20, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. What did the people do to Jesus when he told them the truth about their situation? They attacked him, right? Whenever people don't want to hear the truth about themselves, they shoot the messenger. That's what he says. They hate the light. They won't come to the light, lest your deeds should be reproved. If we have truly surrendered our lives and hearts to Jesus Christ, then our actions and attitudes will be like Jesus Christ. I'm not saying perfectly, but it should be moving in that direction all the time. And when we're admonished for not being where we should be, and for not even trying in some cases, if we attack the person that's trying to help us, that just shows what our heart is. There's no love. 
And so based on Jesus' example, the real radical love of God does not condemn. It's always ready to forgive. One more. Radical love is empty of, self, of pride and self-satisfaction. Now, pride is actually what causes us to judge and condemn each other because, again, we think we're better than everybody else. So there's no room for pride. There's no room for self at all in love. Okay? Can't happen. Love was defined by one of my professors biblically in college, and I've held on to this. I think it's great. Love is a self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of the one loved. That means I will do whatever is best for this person, regardless of what it costs me, with no expectation of return. Whatever it costs me. What did Jesus say? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. I'll give up my life so that other person can benefit. That's love. Pride is the opposite of that. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is not puffed up. It does not boast. It does not seek her own. That's pride, selfishness. Okay? So if that's there, love is not. In other words, real, radical, godly love is defined by self-sacrifice and humility. Not convenience and comfort, self-sacrifice and humility. Love does not love only when it's convenient or when it's comfortable. Love loves all the time, no matter what it costs us. What did Jesus do? Philippians chapter 2 says he humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. Took upon him the form of a servant and then went to death. Absolute love. No regard for himself. All for the benefit of other people. I only have one or two examples here very quickly of Jesus' life and how he exhibited this love. Feeding the 5,000, we all know that story, right? Matthew chapter 14. Jesus went forth, saw a great multitude, and it says he was moved with compassion. That's how the story starts. But that's not actually the start of the feeding. It says he went forward and he saw the multitude and he was moved with compassion and he healed their sick. The people had gathered because they wanted him to heal them. That's why they were there in the first place. So 5,000 men, maybe more women and children, but at least 5,000 people gathered there to be healed. And Jesus healed him. How long would that take? How much energy would that take? Then he feeds them. And miraculously so. And they have abundance. He doesn't just give them enough. He gives them so much they have leftovers. Is that the way we feed each other? Is that the way we care for each other? I had a long day. Do you mind if I don't bother you this week? Do you mind if I don't bother to come by? I don't bother to call you. I don't bother to help you. Because I'm busy. I'm tired. You've got to understand. What did Jesus do? Feeding of the 5,000. And what most people don't realize is that not long after this, Jesus again fed thousands, the 4,000 this time. And it starts exactly the same way. The people gather not to hear him teach, not to be fed. They gather to be healed. So again, they need his help as far as physical healing. But in this case, I want to read the prelude to that story. In Matthew 15, 29, it says, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. That's how that story starts, before the people come. If you departed from some place 
and went up into a mountain and sat down, what would be your intentions for doing that? How about vacation? Rest? To get apart, right? I need some time for myself. That's where Jesus was. And then the people came to him there. And he healed them. And then he fed them. On his me time. In radical love, there's no such thing as me time. Love is on the clock 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We don't get a vacation from that. Jesus didn't. He chose not to. Because that's the way he loved, in a pure love. His love for people surpassed even his own need to have his own needs met. And helping other people was more important than rest, relaxation, vacation, or even alone time for himself. See, that's radical love. And if we're to love like Jesus, there's no such thing as me time. But this kind of love is at the foundation of what we know as Christian liberty. Many people will look at Christian liberty and say, oh, I'm saved and God has given me freedom in Christ, and so I'm free to do things that I'd like to do. That's wrong. When Paul explains Christian liberty, he actually says Christian liberty is the freedom not to live the way you used to. And how did we used to? Looking out for myself, doing the things I want. Christian liberty doesn't give us the freedom to do the things we want. Christian liberty gives us the freedom to give up all of our rights, all of our privileges in order to serve other people. And if we define Christian liberty anything other than giving up something we deserve or are allowed to do, that's not Christian liberty. That's selfishness and pride. Think about your time. Time is a commodity that's in limited supply. You don't get any more of it, okay? You can't recover it once it's gone. So it's a commodity. It's a blessing from God that God has given us. We have 24 hours every day. How much of that do we invest in other people, in the kingdom of God? Or are we so concerned about my own health, my own appetite, my own pleasure, even my own spiritual condition, that I don't bother with other people? Too many Christians have this attitude, like the customer service agent I once heard. And he said, I love my job except for all the people I have to help. Isn't that how many Christians live? I love being a Christian except I've got to deal with so many rotten people. That's what we're called to. To show the love of God to rotten people. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 4, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. But much increase is by the strength of the ox. The teaching there in Proverbs from Solomon, the wisest man, is that life is easy if we don't have to deal with people. Life is comfortable. Life is clean when we don't have to deal with messy people. But that's not what we're called to. You have to bring the messy ox in in order to get anything done. And in order for us to accomplish God's calling for us as his believers, we have to deal with messy people. That's why he's put us here. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gave his disciples this command. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall save it. 
Are we in self-preservation and self-protection mode? We're so concerned about us. Let me go back to that fear factor again. What are we afraid of? We're going to afraid we're going to get hurt? Afraid for our life? I mean, I've, I've heard, and it's in jest, I think, people say, I could never be a missionary because of all the spiders, the big spiders over there. Oh, they got cougars. I, I'd be so afraid. What about the missionaries that do go there? It's the same threat for them, but they have overcome their fear because of love. Love is not about making your life better. It's about sacrificing your life in order to help other people have better lives. Why is it that we avoid certain people or circumstances in living our lives? Because we're afraid. Afraid we might not get what we want. Afraid that things might get out of control. It might be uncomfortable or inconvenient or painful for us. Well, love is not convenient or comfortable. That's not what Jesus Christ called us to. Jesus Christ called us to sacrifice, to give up our life. That's radical love. And if you're not willing to sacrifice everything and give up everything you want for your life, all of your goals, all of your pleasure, all of your expectations in order to love other people, then you are off the track of following Jesus. That's what he says. Why do we avoid speaking the truth in love to one another? What about the believer who is unruly? First, uh, First Thessalonians 5, it says, In verse 14, we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Now, we have no problem, really, with the middle two, comfort the feeble-minded. We always want to come around and comfort people who are down, okay? He says, support the weak. Oh, those people who need help, we're going to be there for them. What about warn the unruly? That's on the same line and the same command. How come we are so afraid to go to people and confront them? I don't want the confrontation. It's uncomfortable for me. They may not like me. They may attack me. Yeah, because people who don't want to hear the truth shoot the messenger. But we're commanded to do it. We must speak the truth in love. And if you avoid that in order to stay in your little comfortable place, you're not only robbing yourself and others of the blessing of the fellowship that can be gained through reconciliation, but you are also in danger of chastisement of God because you're ignoring a clear commanded scripture that we are to obey as believers. See, it's not just, I'll get to it maybe. That's a hard one, I'll work on that. We must do it. In love. That's what we're called to. And if we don't, we're disobedient. That's what the Bible says. Radical love is not about maintaining your comfort or feeling good about yourself or even having a better life. It's defined by self-sacrifice. Jesus gave up everything in order that we might gain everything. That's what he expects of us as disciples. That's what radical love is defined by. True radical love of Jesus Christ is willing to sacrifice whatever it takes in order to meet the needs of the one that we are supposed to love. It's totally void of pride and self-satisfaction, and it is not selective in who it is demonstrated toward. So here's the radical love of Jesus Christ that we're called to. I've just defined three. There's much, many more characteristics. You can look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and go through those. Long-suffering, patient, kind. I mean, the list goes on. 
But I've given you, I think, a good enough sample to challenge us. And after hearing a message like this, some people are going to be able to be tempted to say, you know, I'm doing the best I can, and that's all that God can expect of me. Baloney. None of us are doing the best we can. That's an excuse to avoid the conviction and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God says you can be perfect if you submit yourself. You can have perfect love if you love like Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have him in us. So anything else is an excuse. And if that's your attitude and in your mind right now you have this excuse, well, I can't be that way. I, I, God can't expect me to be that way. God, God, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm working toward it. All of those are excuses. The only right attitude when the Holy Spirit convicts us, and by the way, if you're convicted, it's not me that you should be angry with, it's God, okay? I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But when the Holy Spirit convicts us, the only right attitude is, okay, Lord, I will do it. I give up. I'm going to stop fighting, and I will do it. We are called to God to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ, to love in radical love, perfectly and we can do it perfectly otherwise we wouldn't have been commanded to do it perfectly god has not given us the spirit of fear but of power of love and of a sound mind the fruit of the spirit in us is love seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently that's the radical love we're called to I don't normally do this, but I'm asking you to bow your heads for a minute. Close your eyes with me. I'm going to ask Sean if you would come up to the piano, please. God convicted me about my lack of love and the excuses I was making in my life. And the truth convicts. The truth attacks the sin in our heart. And so I'm going to give you a chance right now to make that commitment to God and to others and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to live in radical love. I'm going to commit myself to it with no excuses to start living that way with the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ's love can be seen in me. I'm not asking you if you haven't done it. I'm not going to ask you if you have done it. I just want to know if you can commit to that now. And if you want to commit to living in radical love without exception, Just raise your hand very quickly. If you have committed yourself, you can put your hands down. If you've committed yourself to that, then God will hold you accountable for that. This is not something you do lightly. This will either change your life to become more like Christ, or you have made a commitment that you do not intend to keep And God will chastise you for it. That's how serious this is. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that your word convicts, that it exposes the weaknesses, the sin in our life. And Lord, I pray that as your word has shown us today, those failures in all of us,
that we would not fight against it, but that we would submit to you in faith and truth, giving up whatever we have been holding on to so that your love can be shown in our lives as you want it to be to other people. Lord, help us to be little Christs in showing radical love. We can only do it through your power, so we ask for your help. We desperately need your help. And so help us to hold on to you with all we have and just follow your leading. And we praise you for what you're going to do through it and the changes that you're going to make in this church and beyond because of it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is 393, Take My Life and Let It Be. Sorry, I should have asked the other guys to come up too. 393.